Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Fighting on Film podcast, the podcast all about classic and obscure war movies. From the Normandy landings to the days of chivalry and swords, if it's been captured on film, we're going to try and cover it. I'm Robbie of RM Military History. I'm Matthew Moss of Historical Firearms and the Armourer's Bench. Hello and welcome back to Fighting on Film. We're here at the IWM Duxford with Dr Hattie Hearn, the curator of the American Air Museum here at Duxford. Hattie, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. I think we'll start things off by asking, what do you think as the curator of the American Air Museum here, what do you think of the show so far? Well, it's uh, when, we, when we first heard that the Masters of the Air was finally getting off the ground, mm. it was so exciting because um, I think like a lot of um, your listeners, I've, I'd been um, waiting for them to actually <laughs> get filming for so long. So it was really exciting uh, when it actually, actually started to come out. And um, I've, I've watched the first few episodes and I mean, I'm, I'm really impressed. I, I know a lot about the story already, obviously, having that background knowledge. Um, but actually to see it come to life has been incredible. Uh, I mean, it's one thing reading about stories of air combat um, and listening to veterans talk about it, but actually seeing it brought to life is a completely different, different experience. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so so I was lucky enough to go to London for the premiere. Um, oh, very cool. And we, wow. Yeah, yeah nice. <laughs> that was really cool. And we watched the first episode, and watching it on the big screen was was amazing. It was so immersive. Um, and in terms of historical accuracy, I've been been really impressed. Um, and having listened to um, some of the the producers and directors talk about the series and, and the efforts they went to to making sure it was as accurate as possible, um, I was I was super kind of impressed with how much effort they put into it. Um, so yeah, yeah, I, 
it's it's been gripping it's been engaging um and i've loved how they've got like the nuances of the kind of the emotional impact of air warfare um and the relationships between the crew members um and also they've also started to touch upon the relationships with the local british people as well Mm. so yeah yeah i've been really really impressed so far so was there any involvement with the production on the museum's part so so during pre-production um John Orloff and a couple of the other writers came to Duxford and they went into the B-17. And I think that was the first time they'd been inside a B-17. Oh, wow. So that kind of informed their script writing and gave them a sense of what it would have been like to actually um, work in one of these. Um, And then we also consulted on some of the the scenes setting. with. um, We talked to um, the set dressers and wardrobe and things to make sure that that they were as historically accurate as possible. Oh, that's cool. So there was some involved. Yeah, yeah, which was cool. positions so we've got our two waist guns um, in earlier models of the B-17 these were completely back to back but they quickly found that when you're kind of operating a 50 cal machine gun um, with two people back to back you're going to bump into each other um, so that's why they, they separated them um, so yeah we'll, I guess we'll get into the, the various vulnerabilities of the different crew positions I think that's a later question but yeah um, yeah, yeah. So these guys would have been covering the each side of the B seventeen, um, looking out for enemy fighters. Um, yeah, and then we've got the ball turret down here, which is obviously quite an uh, iconic feature of the B seventeen. Mm. Um, see that in, in episode three, we when um, Babyface gets stuck in the yeah. in the ball turret. Quite harrowing. Yeah. Very. Yeah. I think that was every ball turret gunner's greatest fear that yeah. they'll be stuck. Um, there are actually a couple of mechanisms to get out, so there's um, so you could actually open it from the outside. Obviously, there's a hand crank. Um, also, if, when you're in the ball turret, if you put your your guns downwards, then that would open up the hatch as well. And there's also a hatch on on the outside. Um, but yeah, it was a scary place to be. That's for sure. See, it's pretty tricky to actually navigate the way through. I can't imagine what it must have been like trying to navigate through yeah. while it was in the air. Yes. This is the yeah. radio operator's compartment. Um, so we got all the radio commitment uh, equipment. Um, so it was here that the, the radio operator could communicate with other planes. Um, so you could patch the, the pilots through to, to the other aircraft in the squadron um, and also the control tower. Um, they all, he also um, could control the intercom system. So all of the crew members had um, throat mics and headphones so that they could hear each other because there was no way that anyone was actually going to be able to hear each other over the sound of the bomber. So they, they all had to have um, communication equipment. Um, and... Each crew member could plug into the intercom system and the, through various outlets um, mm. at each of the different positions. Wow. Um, and we've got our oxygen bottles here, uh, which each uh, crew member would have been attached to. Um, so oxygen was absolutely vital at the type of altitudes they were flying at. 
Um, and if they didn't have oxygen, then they'd probably be passed out within kind of three to five minutes. Mm. So yeah, it was hugely important. Um, and one of the most common actual causes of um, death in a B-17 bomber is lack of oxygen. Wow. One thing we see on the show quite a bit is the, the use of flares yeah, um, yeah. when they're in the air. Is that to avoid using the radio to contact other parts of the group? Yeah, um, yeah. so at some point say, they might need, might have had to have radio silence, mm. but um, also the flares, was just, it was just an easy way to, yeah. to group onto um, each other. So uh, often when they had to form up um, over Britain, they were doing so in completely kind of cloud, clouded conditions. So, so the best way to actually see where each group is is to have is to use flares. Um, also, different coloured flares indicated different things. So, if they had wounded on board, they would fire a red fla- flare, and that let the people on the ground know that they needed to prepare the ambulances and kind of get everything in position for an emergency landing. Mm. Wow. So, what's your favourite part or part of a B seventeen then? Well. That's a really difficult question. Um, I think every part has its kind of unique features. I mean, the cockpit is obviously iconic, um, so we'll, we'll take a look at that in a second. But probably my favourite bit um, is the is the um, the nose of the the aircraft. Um, we could head over there, and I can absolutely <laughs> talk right, through that. Yeah. You can imagine if the bomb bay doors were actually open and you had to walk yeah, in this walkway, it would be a little bit... It's amazingly scary. cramped. Yes, I mean, um, the audio is probably not doing it justice, but you, it's in, you know, it's so tight. You know, I'm, I'm a short man, I'm not a thin man, but I can imagine what it's like when you're fully in your flight suit. Yeah, I think this gantry is about six inches wide. Incredible. Real squeeze. The seats where they come through and pull out the um, fuse tins. Yeah. Doesn't quite get across how. Oh my gosh. No, it really doesn't. Incredibly, incredibly tight. Oh wow. Do you want me to come down, Hattie? Yes. Yes. Yeah, you can imagine with all the fight gear. Oh yeah, <laughs> just going <laughs> down to the oh. the bombers. <sighs> There's that. There's that famous bomb site right in front of us now. Oh wow, a bit of a squeeze. <laughs> wow, we. You can see why these guys had to be pretty young. Yeah, <laughs> without a doubt. So, I mean, it's probably the best time to ask, really, but. Mm. Why do you think the 100th Bomb Group are so revered? Well, it's it, it, it's a few different factors. Um, so I, I think first off, um, it was a group of really big characters. So I think you see that in Masters of the Air. Um, you've got the likes of John Egan and yeah. Gail Clevin. Um, and they are just kind of big, big personalities, um, big leaders, uh, very popular characters. And... That was really important actually during the war to kind of give their bomb group that it's a kind of personality. 
Um, but then also after the war, um, they were still very actively involved in the 100th Bomb Group Association, um, the group of veterans. Mm. They'd organize, help organise reunions um, and kind of carry on this legend of the 100th. Yes. But um, going back to, to the early days of the 100th's involvement um, in, in the uh, air war, um, they ha- experienced these really huge losses. Um, they, they weren't that by any means kind of the 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 worst off group in the whole late air force um they didn't suffer the highest casualties but um during their first few missions in kind of summer autumn of 1943 they did did suffer some some really heavy losses on certain missions at mm. bremen um obviously at um Re- regensburg um and then bremen again and then munster um they 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 had this really hard time they also had quite a high turnover of different commanders um, and they kind of had a reputation for not being perhaps the the best organised group they'd also often be the low squadron so they'd be in the most vulnerable position Um, so kind of all of these factors really gave them this kind of hard luck reputation yes Um, I I really think it was at uh, Munster uh, um, on the, the 10th of October 1943 when they sent out 13 aircraft and only one made it back um royal flush piloted by rosie rosenthal um i think that really cemented the legend of the bloody hundred um Mm. and then from then on replacement crews would if they found out they were going to the hundred they would often um that the reputation had preceded it um so and yeah it was it, it it kind of went on from there and they also had some some difficult missions in in early 1944 as well no i mean it's incredible you know the you see in the show it's the sort of losses that they're taking and mm. it's just, you, you can't you think surely they're going to crack and they're going to you know not be able to go up again but they do it's incredible it's just incredible yeah it yeah. really really is um, so we have a question from our one of our patrons Jamie D he asks what's the biggest challenge you have in curating such a large specialist and important collection and um, does publicity from big projects such as Master of the Air help or hinder your curating tasks that's a really good question. Um, so I think first and foremost, one of the biggest challenges is um, is making, uh, making sure actually we're not seen as an aviation museum. Yeah. So even though we've got these amazing aircraft um, from the First World War all the way through to, to contemporary conflicts, we, we like to actually kind of um, include personal stories of the people who, who flew these planes or who, who worked on them, who are associated with them. So for each aircraft we have a showcase which um, which tells the story of a, an individual who's associated with an aircraft. Um, so for the B-17 we've got a kind of gunner story, we've got a pilot story. Um, for the P-51 we've got um, the story of Huey Lamb who was actually based here at Duxford and who flew with the, the 78th um, fighter group. So, so it's kind of trying to to tell those those um, personal emotional stories that people can connect to. That can be a bit of a challenge. Um, also, telling telling the stories of people who maybe aren't as well represented in other collections. Mm. So, 150,000 um, Black Americans actually served in England during the Second World War, and many of those were based with the U.S. Army Air Force uh, building airfields. And despite thousands of, of men and women serving here, um, it's actually really difficult to to find um, documentation and collections that relate to their story. So, so that's probably one of the greatest challenges. Um, and 
also uh, when you're kind of dealing with all that you've got to bear in mind that we're also a memorial to yeah. these um, men and women who, who served here and who didn't um, get to go back to the states so we've got to bear that in mind as well and make sure that we're we're kind of telling their story but also commemorating them um, so mm. yeah it's, it's a very com complex role but um, hugely enjoyable and um, I'm just so lucky <laughs> to work yeah. with this incredible collection without a doubt Matt I think you've got some questions haven't you so Hattie how did the the 8th and the US Air, Army Air Force in general how did their tactics actually develop during the war <clears throat> yeah so um, it was it kind of came about through a few different factors I think the 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 most important thing about the 8th Air Force and the, the tactics was that they were very versatile and it all really began back even before the war um, with the Bomber Mafia who was a, a group of um, US Army kind of intellects who came up with this idea that the the bomber would always always get through so if you had a, a uh, doctrine of high altitude precision bombing um, bombers uh, mainly the b-17 would be able to operate that in daytime in, in daylight and always be able to make it back and obviously in practice this was a highly flawed concept and as soon as they got into the european theater they realized that actually it was um it was much more difficult than they that, than they thought so they had to adapt their tactics um probably the one of the, the most pivotal moments was the the development of the combat box formation so whereas before um kind of 1942 um bombers were flying in like v formations um which left them very vulnerable to attack they weren't really um, in a, a good position to defend themselves. Um, Curtis LeMay, who was one of the bomb group commanders, came up with this, this idea of the combat box. So elements um, would form up into squadrons, would form up into groups, and they would kind of take on this bo bo box-like formation. And this, these boxes would be staggered um, every few miles and at different altitudes. And this helped the bombers to defend themselves. Um, and it also meant that the, they, they lowered the risk of actually dropping bombs on their own formations, which mm. was obviously important. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was a, a, an example of how tactics changed. The, the next real big change came in late 1943, early 1944, um, when Jimmy Doolittle, who'd just taken over command of the 8th Air Force, um, developed some new fighter tactics. So this, um, at this moment, the uh, P-51 Mustang kind of came to the fore and the, the P-51 had the range to to take the bombers all the way to their targets, which was a massive game changer um, for the 8th Air Force. And Doolittle came up with, with a new tactic where he basically let the fighters loose. They no longer had to be chained to the bombers. They could actually go ahead of the formation and attack the, the Luftwaffe fighters who were waiting for the bombers. Mm. Um, and then on the way back, um, if they had the opportunity to, they could attack ground targets, um, airfields and kind of other other important installations. So, so that had a huge impact on actually um, helping the Allies to gain superiority um, in the air, which would be huge leading up to D-Day uh, mm. and beyond. So, so yeah, tactics really evolved with changing technologies and vice versa. Sure. Um, so, so I think that was one of the 8th Air Force's greatest strength. Mm. Strengths, its ability to adapt yeah. under different circumstances. Um, obviously, as you're going forward, <clears throat> you get more bombers, so you yeah. can do more things. Exactly, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello there. Sorry to interrupt. I wanted to let you know that you can now join our supporting cast over on Patreon. As thanks for your support, you'll be able to help us pick films, submit questions for guests, have first pick on brand new and exclusive merch, and much more. Thank you for your support. Now back to the show. So our next question is from A.D. Bond. Um, he asks, what's the process for crew selection once Air Force personnel had arrived in the UK? Yeah, so, so that's a, a really interesting question because um, often we don't really touch upon how these crews were actually actually put together. Um, so whereas in, in the RAF you kind of have a much more organic crew selection process, so bomb uh, bomber personnel were all kind of chucked into a big hangar and kind of just left to sort themselves out into different groups and different mm, crews. Yeah, um, you do hear that, don't you? Yeah, you'll be the gunner. You'll be basically. The, yeah. um, but in in the US Army Air Force, it was much more scientific. So crews were assigned um, by by commanders, and it was done. Um, after having kind of gone through different interviews and people were assessed based on their personality types and mm. also their different capabilities and then they were put into to crews that way they also um considered people's demographics so they they liked to have a mix of people they didn't like to have two people from the same hometown for example um so it was a much more scientific approach and to be honest it it, it did work most of the time crews tended to gel um, there were instances where where people had to be transferred out because they just weren't working well together, um, but the the main aim was to create a crew that could could work work well, basically like a machine, and mm. they had to be able to do that in a B seventeen because teamwork was essential. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so crews would be formed in the states, and then they would usually fly their bomber over to England. Yeah. Um, but you did obviously have replacement crew. Um, gunners as well who would often travel over on the Queen Mary and then um, would be assigned to different bomb groups when they're in the UK. Wow, yeah. Matt, you've got another question, I think. So we're here in the nose of the aircraft in the in the navigator's position. Is there a position that you would have least liked to have manned if you'd been a member of a B-17 crew? Yeah, I mean, that is another really good question. Um, I think... We often think of the ball turret gunner as being the most vulnerable position, mm. and certainly, it's certainly you can make a case that that would be the worst position. You're you're kind of in this fetal position for um, maybe up to eight hours, mm. and you're you're quite isolated. Um, and again, with with the tail gunner as well, um, you're in a very isolated position at the back of the aircraft, um, very uncomfortable. You're sitting on this kind of bicycle seat. Um, 
but but actually when you look at survivability rates the ball turret gunner was certainly not the worst on on the aircraft which is quite surprising um the waste gunner position um you you had actually a much greater chance of of being killed or wounded in in that position and that is really because you're um you're very vulnerable to strafing from enemy fighters there's not really that much armor plating there um Mm -hmm. and you're also kind of standing in front of a, a giant window in your aircraft. <laughs> yeah, obviously. Um, and uh, that has implications as well for just comfort because mm. you're facing winds of up to 200 miles per hour, temperatures of up to minus 50 below. Um, so it's it's uh, not the, the nicest of places to be. So I think the waste gunner position would probably um, be my least favourite. Although saying that, you could also make a case for the bombardier's position uh, where we're sitting right now because yeah. you're you're extremely vulnerable to frontal attacks from enemy aircraft mm-hmm. and and you've also got this huge responsibility so the whole bomber's mission is to to put the bombs on the target and that comes down to you when you're on the bomb run so you're you've got to be focused on getting those bombs on the target during the most harrowing of the most harrowing yeah. most scary part of the the mission so yeah, Bombardier is probably a close second for me. Wow. I suppose the obvious follow-up on that is what position would you have liked to have manned? Yeah, um, I think I'm going to have to go for glory and go for the pilot's <laughs> position. Um, you're, you're the commander of the ship. You, you've got 10 people's lives in your hand. I mean, mm. hands. I mean, it's a, it's a scary prospect um you're the one that's given the the order to bail out if you need to and you're the one with the responsibility to bring your plane back home safely so there's a lot riding on it but then you're also you've you've also got that that kind of cool status as the commander of the plane a lot of people would be looking up to you so i think i'd go with pilot and you get to tell everyone you're a pilot too. Yeah, yeah of cool. course. I, yeah. I, mean, I, I guess you get all the ladies, I imagine. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, true. it's pretty cool. So now me and Matt have had a bit of a debate about this in the last week or so, and we thought we'd spring it on you just for the reaction. When you're on the plane and you want to go... Eight hours in. Eight hours in. You know, you've just gone to Germany, you're on your way home. <laughs> what do you do if you need the loo on board? Yeah, that's actually a really common question. I bet it is. <laughs> I bet it is. Yeah, yeah. So some RAF bombers, um, they actually had a little toilet that you could use. It wasn't really recommended. Um, as you can imagine, turbulence mm. didn't really owe itself to going to the loo. Um, but the B-17 didn't have anything like that. It did have... You were given a relief tube, so it was a kind of a glass tube that you could could um, do your business in, um, and then often just pour that out. Sure, yeah, <laughs> the bomb yeah, bed. obviously, yeah. yeah. Um, or if um, you were really caught short and you needed a number two, it was a, yeah. a bucket situation. Oh. But um, that definitely really wasn't uh, wasn't yeah. favorable. You also had a lot of ammo um, cases, of course, <laughs> yeah, <much laughs> ammo boxes you could did. use. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, but Often, I mean, in the actual middle of combat when maybe you needed to go the most because you're absolutely scared out of your wits, um, some crews just had to go of course. in in their um, their heated flying suits. And actually, there's a lot of cases where where the the heated electrical he- electrically heated flying suits would short circuit because wow. crews had gone to the loo in them. Um, yeah, that was an episode. One, yes, it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and um, that would cause frostbite and all sorts. So definitely not recommended. Um, also, there's a, a 
quite a few cases of, of the ball turret gunner getting a bit annoyed because often crews would um, use the bomb bay as, sure. a, as a toilet but as you can imagine the the urine would then hit back straight into the yeah. ball turret and that would cloud their vision and it's just not pleasant nice. so yeah it was wow. a, it was a very important thing to consider yeah. because these guys were up up in the air for up to kind of eight yeah. even ten hours of so, um, like a yeah. working day you know. exactly yeah you're gonna need yeah. the loo well i'm out of five an hour because i you know i i was thinking <laughs> oh well they might have had a system you know so mm-hmm. matt was right he said through the bomb pit yeah <laughs> yeah so we have another question from uh, westerly owl and he asks um what you know what productions have been used at duxford yes um so i most famously Going back to 1968, um, the Battle of Britain of film course, was was filmed here. Yeah, very famously. Um, and actually, <coughs> there was an interesting story around that. So, as part of the the scene, I think the the airfield's coming under attack, and one of the hangars is blown up. Yes, and that actually did happen in real life here at Duxford. One of our first World War hangars was blown up during yeah. the production. Um, I believe that actually the production company didn't seek permission from Duxford oh, to do quite that. Infamous, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, and it's a it's a massive shame because that hangar actually had a lot of history attached to it. So during the Second World War, whilst the the seventy eight fighter group are based here, that hangar is used as a, the base theatre. Mm. So you have the likes of Bing Crosby and Bob Hope all performing oh, in that wow. hangar. Um, so it's a shame we don't have it now. We've mm. just got the the concrete base there where it would have sat. Um, and that that kind of that actually had big implications on the history of Duxford. Oh, yeah. So after that um, demolition, um, huge efforts were made to secure the future of Duxford Airfield, and it, it became listed. And the Imperial War Museum took it over um, to run it as as a museum. So we do we do um, have. Oh, uh, we do owe quite a lot to yeah. that that production. Ironically, like it, yeah, yeah very <laughs> ironically. Um, but more recently, uh, the the airfield was used as the filming location for an upcoming film, um, Six Triple Eight, which is Ooh, yes. yeah, which um, Tyler Perry Netflix. Series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. So it tells the story of the Six Triple Eight Postal Battalion, and they were actually a battalion of black american women they were the only unit of of black american women to serve overseas during the second world war and they were based here in england in birmingham and they were tasked with sorting through three years worth of mail um and for distribution to the troops in europe and they managed to do that task exceptionally exceptionally well they got through the whole backlog within six months um we do tell their story here at duxford in the american air museum and so so that's one that we're really looking forward yeah. to actually coming out that's gonna be a good one yeah it's been amazing talking to you inside of b17 i think it's the this is the first fighting on film episode to be recorded on location and, and what better location than a <laughs> right. B-17 yeah it's amazing so thank you so much for joining us no thanks for having me wonderful experience thanks for coming on thank you and I'm going to do the outro in the B-17 of course next to the the, the bomb site amazing so make sure you follow us on the socials leave us a review wherever you listen to us and we'll catch you again for more War Movie Fun on Fighting on Film and I'll also add definitely come and check out the museum here at the IWM Duxford um, to get a look at Sally B. Yeah, please do. Thanks for joining us at it. Thank you. Bye bye, everybody. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.